Others are going to continue to trickle into the room. We're thrilled you're all here for this great session today, cultivating trust, exploring the writings of Eti Hillesum. Very, very fascinating. Um, we're here with a great scholar and, and, uh, and colleague and friend, Dorothy Richman, who serves as rabbi for Makor Or Jewish Meditation and is a founding faculty member of the Romamu Yeshiva. Her album of original music inspired by Torah is available on Bandcamp. Rabbi Dorothy Richmond has been with us here at Valley Beit Midrash back in the days when, uh, uh, when, when uh, together meant being together in the same room. We hope to be back in those days again soon. She is not only a great scholar and thinker, but a deep soul um, and a wonderful educator. And so welcome. We look forward to uh, learning with you, cultivating trust, exploring the writings of Eti Hillesum. We thank Congregation Beth Israel for their co-sponsorship of today's program. Rabbi Richmond, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Rav Shmuley. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I'm, I love teaching about um, both trust and, and Eddie Hillisum. So I'm going to, uh, in some ways, just jump right in. And one of the things I like to do um, when I'm teaching is just to notice where we are in Jewish spiritual time. And where we are in Jewish spiritual time is we are in the month of ER, it's the seventh of ER. And in the counting of the Omer, um, we are on the day that's known as Gvura Shebenetzach. So strength or limitation um, of endurance. And I wanna be thinking about endurance, Netzach, um, as we're thinking about trust. What um, helps trust endure? And um, what challenges it? Um, this woman, Eddie Halesim, that I'm bringing uh, to you today, I think in many ways is a perfect primary text for these kinds of questions. And so it fits really beautifully in, um, in our calendar of Jewish time as well. So I wanna share with you, before I get into Eddie, just a short piece from Jeremiah. And I believe you have the source sheet. Um, I'll put I'll put the source sheet in um, in the chat. I listed the sources. Yeah, you're good again. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I'm also going to just put in the chat for anyone who'd like to see them um, the English here of Jeremiah. Oh, did the same thing. Um, Thus said God. Cursed be the one who trusts in humans and makes mortal flesh their strong arm. And they shall be like an arid shrub in the desert and they shall not see when good things come. And they shall dwell in scorched places in the wilderness, a barren land that cannot be settled. So that's the cursed one who trusts, but trusts in other people. And now we're going to have the other side. Blessed be the one who trusts in Adonai, and Adonai becomes their trust. And they shall be like a tree planted by waters, and by a stream it sends forth its roots, and it shall not see when the heat weight comes, and its leaves shall be lush, and in a drought it shall have not care, and never cease from yielding fruit. So we can see that, the song, that Jeremiah here has pretty strong feelings right, about who you should trust in and what real trust is, right? And real trust can only, according to Jeremiah in this piece, seem to be um, the right way that we think about God. Now, what do we mean by the word trust? In Hebrew, this word that I've referenced in the Jeremiah is bitachon. And this word bitachon in modern Hebrew Variously is the translation for insurance, for defense, and for security. So for all of these things that seemingly we are um, trusting 
to save us when things go wrong or to protect us from things going wrong. Um, all of these um, ways of having bitachon or trust are sort of like plan Bs for when things do go wrong. And they are not um, what we see in Jeremiah, trust in God, trust in the divine. And really, I want to suggest that this is a false uh, distinction that we don't of course have to trust in just one or the other, that it is in many cases our trust in one another and our experience of trust with other humans that allow for our trust in the divine. And in the same way that our trust in the divine can lead to um, cultivating trust in other people. Nonetheless, I wanna look at one other biblical text from Psalm 27. This is a um, well-known Psalm because it's said every day during the whole high holiday season from the month of Elul through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and uh, through to the end of Sukkot. Should an army besiege me, my heart would have no fear. Should war beset me, still I would trust. And the one thing I wanna pull from here, again, this is trust in the divine. But the one thing that we're seeing here that I wanna highlight is that this trust is unshakable. And it's an inner relationship with the divine that is not dependent on any external circumstances and actually can withstand very challenging external circumstances, which brings us to Eddie Hillisum. Eddie Hillisum um, was a young woman in her late 20s in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam, who began writing a journal. She began writing a journal when she was 27 in 1941, um, almost 80 years, it's, it's about 80 years ago and a month and change when she started writing this journal. And um, it catalogs what you would expect in the beginning. A lot of her relationships with men, and with friends and wondering what her career is going to look like and talking about her relationships. And she's also very much working on herself and her ability to, um, to center and ground herself in spiritual practice. And she has a teacher, Julia Speer, who is helping her. And he actually is the one who recommended that she begin writing a journal to help her sort of um, stop feeling so buffeted about by her own emotions and by the events of the day and to find some ways to, um, to be more solid in her life, which is something I think we can all relate to. And so this journal, is a step in that direction. So um, if you're following along on your source sheet, on page two at the top, this is how um, she begins the journal after, after a copy of a letter that she writes before then. March 9th, 1941. Here goes then. This is a painful and well nigh insuperable step for me yielding up so much that has been suppressed to a blank sheet of lined paper. The thoughts in my head are sometimes so clear and so sharp and my feelings so deep, but writing about them comes hard. The main difficulty I think is a sense of shame. So many inhibitions, so much fear of letting go of allowing things to pour out of me. And yet that is what I must do if I'm ever going to give my life a reasonable and satisfactory purpose. It's like the final liberating scream that always sticks bashfully in your throat when you make love. I'm accomplished in bed, just about seasoned enough I should think to be counted among the better lovers. And love does indeed suit me to perfection, yet it remains a mere trifle, set apart from what is truly essential. And deep inside me, something is still locked away. 
The rest of me is like that too. I am blessed enough intellectually to be able to fathom most subjects, to express myself clearly on most things. I seem to be a match for most of life's problems. And yet deep down, something like a tightly wound ball of twine binds me relentlessly. And at times I am nothing more or less than a miserable frightened creature, despite the clarity with which I can express myself. And I love that this is the beginning of her journal because you get such a um, an interesting introduction to this woman, right? Um, the way that she talks about sex is perhaps surprising, right? I sometimes uh, characterize her as, you know, a sex in the city cosmopolitan in her late 20s living in Amsterdam, right? And, and in some ways reading about a woman in 1941 describing herself this way um, is surprising. Um, and yet um, it's a reminder to us um, that, that this was very much uh, the experience of, of a whole community of people. And for Eddie particularly, what she will say explicitly later in her journal is that for her, intimacy, sexual intimacy is very simple, but what is very difficult for her is prayer. She feels that prayer is an intimacy to pray in front of someone else or to watch someone pray. She just, she almost can't imagine it. And we'll see how she moves throughout um, her deepening experience of this time period into a really intimate relationship with God, with the divine. Moving to our next um, entry, it's just a little while later, um, within a week. It is the problem of our age. Hatred of Germans poisons everyone's mind. Let the bastards drown, the lot of them. Such sentiments have become part and parcel of our daily speech and sometimes make one feel that life these days has grown impossible. That doesn't mean you have to be half-hearted. On the contrary, you must make a stand, wax indignant at times, try to get to the bottom of things. But indiscriminate hatred is the worst thing there is. It is a sickness of the soul. And then she continues later that night, sometimes I am amongst people who indulge themselves freely in expressing their hatred admittedly quite understandable of our new rulers. They will often say things that are absolute lies, but which they use to egg one, on, one another on and to work one another up. They are seeking to shore up their hatred and are determined to stick to their guns. I just sit there then and think my own thoughts. Nazi Not barbarism. Nazi barbarism evokes the same kind of barbarism in ourselves. We have to reject that barbarism within us. We must not fan the hatred within us because if we do, the world will not be able to pull itself one inch further out of the mire. You can be very militant and act in a principled way without being crammed full with hatred. And this is something we're going to see becomes really um, characteristic of Eddie's thought and writings. She doesn't want to, um, to be filled with hatred, even righteous and justifiable hatred. She never wants to, even when she is in a camp, we'll see, she doesn't want to paint all Germans with one brush. She refuses um, to, to fill herself with hatred. And she works very hard to try in very trying circumstances to continue to grow in love. So shortly thereafter, on March 17th, 1941, she talks about her spiritual practice and how it's paying off. My center is growing firmer by the day. In the past, for all my fine and well-founded theories, I was nothing but a fluttering, insecure little bird. And now deep inside me, there is a center of strength, which also radiates strength to the outside, as I can tell 
from the reactions of my fellow men. And so here we see Eddie um, consciously telling us about her spiritual practice and what she's seen come through. And if you're wondering what does this spiritual practice look like in the next entry of June 8th, still in 1941, we get a clearer picture, at least of some of the things she's doing. In addition with her to her work with uh, Julius Speer, um, in addition to some uh, physical exercises she's doing, she's going to talk about um, some meditation. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice, lose myself. You could also call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself, but it's not so simple that sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. True, there may be edifying emotions and thoughts too, but the clutter is ever present. So let this be the aim of the meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view so that something of God can enter you and something of love too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you can revel in deliciously for half an hour, taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small everyday things. I might of course read the Bible each morning, but I don't think I'm ready for that. I still worry about the real meaning of the book rather than lose myself in it. And here we find, first of all, um, a woman in 1941, a Jewish woman practicing what she's calling meditation, but also um, we're seeing her understand that um, sometimes, sometimes the cognitive can get in the way of the spiritual. Sometimes um, reading even Torah can just lead us to think about what is this and do I like it and do I not like it and who wrote it anyway and what are the commentaries and I think I heard someone say this about it and she's saying you know I just don't think that's what I need right now and the imagery that she brings up is creating this empty space within her right this field where she can invite the divine and love to drop in. And that's what she's working towards. And what I'd like to highlight here is that Etty, though a very educated woman, she has at this point already gotten a degree in law and she's now studying languages and she's a tutor for literature and she reads Russian and, and many, many languages as we'll see. Um, and yet, Jewishly, she does not seem to be highly literate in, uh, in Jewish text and practice. She doesn't speak about Shabbat. She doesn't speak um, uh, much about uh, Jewish holidays or Jewish practices. And yet what she does as we watch her in this journal is she creates really by herself, a relationship to God. Um, she's not creating her own religion, but she's creating her own relationship. And the whole time she is proudly Jewish. And um, as we will see, very firmly affiliates and considers herself a part of the Jewish people. So now we're going to move forward to September 24th, 1941. And now I have that solemn feeling again. I must set about everything afresh once more. I don't think I've been working on myself with the necessary seriousness of late. I thought that I could carry on as I am. This afternoon, I suddenly found myself kneeling on the brown coconut matting in the bathroom. 
my head hidden in my dressing gown, which was slung over the broken cane chair. Kneeling doesn't really come easily to me. I feel a sort of embarrassment. Why? Probably because of the critical, rational, atheistic bit that is part of me as well. And yet every so often, I have a great urge to kneel down with my face in my hands and in this way to find some peace and to listen to that hidden source within me. And so again, in this piece, we see both her struggle to sort of balance her very educated mind and all that she knows and doubts and thinks about with what she's recognizing are deep spiritual needs and the need just to pray. And I want to focus for just a moment on what prayer means to her here. Because the way that she describes it is to A, find some peace, right? And B, to listen to that hidden source within me. And so she has this conception that God is not some far away uh, deity, but is a source within her that if she can quiet herself down, she can access it. And we'll see this, uh, we'll see this continue. And I see that there's some questions. Do feel free to ask questions in the chat. I'll probably relate to them towards the end, but just so that you can remember what your questions are as we're going, do feel free to, uh, to list them in the chat. Moving ahead to March 20, in 1942. And in the diary, I didn't bring, um, I didn't bring these sources so much because I wanted to focus on her relationship with the divine. But throughout the journal, we see things like, oh, today we had to pick up our gold stars to wear. Oh, today they put the sign up in the park that Jews could no longer ride bicycles, right? And so the document is not only this amazing spiritual document, but it's also a document in real time of, of, of a community witnessing, right? Um, the, the Nazi occupation and how um, the different laws uh, start to, to um, limit their movement and eventually how, they, how the Amsterdam community will be sent to a transit camp, Westerbork. Um, and Eddie, as we'll see in a little bit, um, Eddie chooses to go to Westerbork. She begins working there as part of the Jewish council. Um, and we'll see how that impacts all of this work, conscious work that she is doing, conscious spiritual work, and the relationship that she feels with God, even in the camp. So we're up. Um, to March 28th, 1942. Life may be brimming over with experiences, but somewhere deep inside, all of us carry a vast and fruitful loneliness wherever we go. And sometimes the most important thing in the world is the rest we take between two deep breaths or the turning inward in prayer for five short minutes. In April 24th, 1942, in our next source, I picked this one also mainly because um, it's actually today. <laughs> it's 79 years ago on the 7th of ER. And I often like to see in Eddie's journal when I teach her what she said on this very calendar day. And so I wanna read to you a selection from what she said on the seventh of ER. Bit by bit, you learn this too. On those days when you feel physically out of sorts, don't hit out and make trouble for those around you. People are really much too ready to do that, feeling wretched and continually taking out on those around them. We must find out how to come to terms with our own bad moods without making others suffer for them. 
Right now, I feel like some animal that wants only to creep into a quiet corner and lie there hugging itself. That's quite a good feeling. Not to want to hit out, but to stay quietly curled up in some corner. And also not to let your thoughts and feelings spill out on everything around you. I used to do that all the time. Then I would poison everything. Everything that came near me, everything that came into my head, everything I set eyes on with my bad feelings. Now, I know how to isolate and accept that mood and make sure it causes no more trouble. Such days are really very trying. Um, one thing that I like about this selection is that she's honest, right? Sometimes you're just gonna have a bad mood and we're seeing her work out how to deal with that, right? This might be wisdom that some of us, it took us a really long time to figure out that we don't have to blame other people or make them share in our bad moods or our bad feelings. And she's figuring this out. But one of the things I like about this particular passage is she seems to be, you know, understanding about it and working through it. But at the end, she still says, such days are really very trying doesn't mean any of this is easy. It doesn't mean that any of the practice that she's talking about is simple to actually do. And in the next uh, short entry from July 5th, she says, for a whole year now, I've been working at the quiet space within me so that it is now expanded into a great hall, palpably present. And with your indulgence, I just want to take a moment. I, I made a little chant to this because I feel like some of these teachings of hers, you know, it's good to soak in them for a minute or two. So I'm just going to play a little chant that I set to this because I think this idea of working at the quiet space within us until it can expand is a beautiful definition of what we're doing when we engage spiritual practice, whichever spiritual practice it might be, working at that quiet space until it becomes a great hall. I've, I've been working at the quiet space, the quiet space within me. piece from our Eddie journals is really, if you've ever heard of Eddie, you've probably read this one. It's one of the most famous pieces. It's from July 12th, 1942. Dear God, these are anxious times. 
Tonight, for the first time, I lay in the dark with burning eyes, a scene after scene of human suffering passed before me. I shall promise you one thing, God, just one very small thing. I shall never burden my today with cares about my tomorrow, although that takes some practice. Each day is sufficient unto itself. I shall try to help you, God, to stop my strength ebbing away, though I cannot vouch for it in advance. But one thing is becoming increasingly clear to me, that you cannot help us, that we must help you to help ourselves. And that's all we can manage these days. And also all that really matters, that we safeguard that little piece of you, God, in ourselves and perhaps in others as well. Alas, there doesn't seem to be much you yourself can do about our circumstances, about our lives. Neither do I hold you responsible. You cannot help us, but we must help you and defend your dwelling place inside us to the last. There are, it is true, some who even at this late stage are putting their vacuum cleaners and silver forks and spoons in safekeeping instead of guarding you, dear God. And there are those who want to put their bodies in safekeeping, but who are nothing more now than a shelter for a thousand fears and bitter feelings. And they say, I shan't let them get me into their clutches. But they forget that no one is in their clutches who is in your arms. I am beginning to feel a little more peaceful, God, thanks to this conversation with you. I shall have many more conversations with you. You are sure to go through lean times with me now and then when my faith weakens a little, but believe me, I shall always labor for you and remain faithful to you and I shall never drive you from my presence. So we get a really interesting theology here. Really, we're seeing that now she's really developed a, a theology that, that we don't hear much about. Um, and I wanna just say for a moment that a lot of our Holocaust theology talks about the absence of God or the death of God even. But here we have someone who's finding God very strongly within her experience. And hopefully I'm going to talk a little bit more about the implications for theology, for our understanding of the divine human connection in the world and theodicy and with evil um, through the testimony we see here in her writings. In September 17th, 1942, it is all good to the good. My body is called a halt, O oh God, for I must rest a while if I am to do what I have to do. Or perhaps that is just another conventional idea. Even if one's body aches, the spirit can continue to do its work, can it not? It can love and hein ein horchen, hearken unto itself and unto others and unto what binds us to life. Hein ein horchen. I so wish I could find a Dutch equivalent for that German word. Truly my life is one long hearkening unto myself and unto others, unto God. And if I say that I hearken, it is really God who hearkens inside me, the most essential and the deepest in me, hearkening unto the most essential and deepest in the other, God to God. I'm going to move ahead to October 3rd, 1942. God, and here she's directly addressing God. She does this many times in the journals. She writes her prayers to God. God, grant me the great and mighty calm that pervades all nature. If it is your wish to let me suffer, then let it be one great all-consuming suffering, not the thousand petty anxieties that can break a human being. Give me peace and confidence. Let every day be something more than the thousand everyday cares. 
All those worries about food, about clothing, about the cold, about our health, are they not so many denials of you, my God? And don't you come down on us hard in punishment with insomnia and with lives that have ceased to be worth living? I shall no longer write in this exercise book. I shall simply lie down and try to be a prayer. There is no hidden poet in me, just a little piece of God that might grow into poetry. I'll just take a moment here for another chant break for this last piece. There is no hidden poet in me Just a little piece of God that might grow into poetry There is no hidden poet in me Just a little piece of God that might grow something I can't help think about when I teach Eddie and when I read Eddie how how I wish I could have seen what she would have grown into into her 30s and into her 40s and into her 50s until 120. On October 4th of 1942 sometime in the middle of the night she writes God and I have been left all alone and there's no one left to help me. I have responsibilities and have not yet completely buckled down to them. I still play about and am very undisciplined. It doesn't make me feel impoverished at all, rather quite rich and peaceful. God and I have been left behind all alone. Good night. In a letter she wrote from Westerbork, transit camp on June 8th, 1943. The sky is full of birds. The purple lupins stand up so regally and peacefully. Two little old women have sat down on the box for a chat. The sun is shining on my face and right before our eyes, mass murder. The whole thing is simply beyond comprehension. I'm fine. in a letter to a friend on July 10th, 1943. My prayers too aren't going quite right. I know you can pray to God to give people the strength to bear whatever comes, but I keep repeating the same prayer. Lord, make it as short as possible. In a letter to another friend, in August, this afternoon I was resting on my bunk and suddenly I just had to write these few words in my diary and I now send them to you. You have made me so rich, oh God, please let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become an uninterrupted dialogue with you, oh God, one great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in one corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised toward your heaven, Tears sometimes run down my face, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night too, when I lie in my bed and rest in you, oh God, tears of gratitude run down my face and that is my prayer. I've been terribly tired for several days, but that too will pass. Things come and go in a deeper rhythm and people must be taught to listen. It is the most important thing we have to learn in this life. I am not challenging you, oh God. My life is one great dialogue with you. 
I may never become the great artist I would really like to be, but I'm already secure in you, God. The second to last text from Eddie that I'm sharing, well, really the, the last one from her was found, a postcard that she threw over the side of the train that took her from Westerbork to Auschwitz. Christine, opening the Bible at random, I find this from Psalms. The Lord is my high tower. I'm sitting on my rucksack in the middle of a full freight car. Father, mother, and Misha, her brother, are a few cars away. In the end, the departure came without warning. On sudden special orders from The Hague, we left the camp singing. And her friend wrote to other friends describing that special order and what it put into motion. It is not going to be easy for me to tell you this. It all happened so suddenly, so unexpectedly. Odd, isn't it? It seemed unexpected even now. It seemed sudden even now, although we had all been ready and waiting for such a long time. And there she set foot on the transport boulevard, which she had described just 14 days earlier in her own incomparable manner talking gaily, smiling, a kind word for everyone she met on the way, full of sparkling good humor, perhaps just a touch of sadness, but every inch our Eddie, the way you all know her. I have my diaries and my small Bibles and my Russian grammar and Tolstoy with me, and I have no idea what else there is in my luggage. We know that she and her family arrived in Auschwitz. And there is no uh, confirmed record of when she was murdered. The Red Cross picking a date, uh, picked a date in early November, which has become the day on which her death has been um, observed. And you may wonder by whom? Who is it observed by? And I will just say um, that there, of late have become uh, a bunch of us in the Jewish world who are teaching Eddie Hillisum, but she remains largely unknown uh, and largely uh, undiscussed in the Jewish world. Um, her, the younger counterpart, right? Uh, Anne Frank's journals and diaries are, are much better known. Um, and there, there are several reasons for this. Uh, perhaps we can talk about this, um, why she hasn't been taken up more in the Jewish community, but she has been actually quite significantly celebrated, uh, been celebrated in the Catholic community. And, uh, and they very much, uh, the, the Catholic church um, has uh, sponsored um, different sessions on Eddie and, and many of us, including my personal first meeting with, uh, with her diaries was due to a Catholic friend of mine, uh, passing, uh, her book on to me. Um, and so that may be one, uh, one direction our conversation might take. We might go further into the theology, uh, that she expresses. Um, and, uh, and why we don't really hear more about um, her experience. I'll maybe just say one thing about this before we, we go into some questions and discussion, um, which has just been fascinating to me, which is that you may have heard of um, the stress response of fight or flight, right? That this, is, this was, um, through psychology and biology, evolutionary biology, there was this idea that humans, um, when we are in incredible stress, that we either fight or run away. And um, in the 2000s, um, two uh, women who were researchers looked into the stress research and realized that almost 90% 
of the research that led to fight or flight responses was done on men. And they did some research and, um, and they came up with an entirely new paradigm for how some women experience a great stress and deal with it. And uh, now I'm quoting, they say, because whether a woman is pregnant when she is threatened or nursing or surrounded by children, neither fight nor flight will be of much use. She forms alliances with others that are protective as well as comforting. And instead of fight or flight, they named this tend and befriend. Another whole way of thinking about this, and for those of you who've looked into how, um, how people experience the camps, it is also true that in the women's camps, um, there was a whole phenomenon known as Lagerschwestern, camp sisters, coined by women in the concentration camps, referring to the close family-like ties the women formed for mutual assistance and strength, where they would adopt sisters. Um, and there are many, many accounts of this. Um, and so I think that maybe my last word on this is that when we think about what God looks like and who we would have expected God to be, even in the camps, right? That here we're getting an example, not of Joshua's God, not of the militaristic conquering God that's going to come in and take care of the bad guys and clear the way for us. But perhaps this is more akin to Ruth and Naomi's God, the God who shows up after disaster or in the midst of disaster and helps us not only trust in God, but form the trusting relationships with one another that can get us through to whatever, to whatever place that we go. All right. Um, I'd love to open this up. And I see that Carrie asked, which version of an interrupted life am I using as the source material? Um, and Carrie's mentioning a 1981 paperback version. Yes. So um, I am using a different version. Um, the paperback is widely available. It's a great place to start. The version I'm using is a much later and um, not abridged version. The paperback, just like Anne Frank's diary, was highly um, edited and abridged, as was Eddie's in the paperback. So I have a, a 600 and some page um, diary, which is actually quite difficult to find. If you can find one, that's great. Um, but um, there is also a two-volume bilingual um, version, also not cheap, um, The Complete Works, Eddie Hillisum, 1941 to 1943, two volumes, bilingual, annotated, and unabridged um, that you can get, um, you can order from Europe if you are so inclined. Um, but the, the, the paperback's a great place to start. So if people have questions um, or things they'd like to, to discuss, feel free just to raise your hand on the raise hand function at the bottom or type, type any questions, thoughts um, to, into the chat. Yes, Beth. Nice to see you. <laughs> you too, Robin. I'm wondering about um, Eddie Hillison's connection with the Catholic Church and why they have um, raised her up. How did they discover her? It's a great question. Um, so I don't have a fully complete answer, but I can give you a couple of the pieces. One is a lot of Eddie's language um, is very consonant with Christianity. She is during this period 
also reading a lot of New Testament scripture and talking about it occasionally. At one point, she in the journals uh, describes a conversation she has with someone in Westerbork in the in the camp who um, is very angry and she is talking about, you know, not hating and finding a way to love and and he says to her, but Eddie, that's just Christianity. And she says, so what if it is, right? And so some people take it as that she is actually, you know, if not uh, articulating that she is Christian, that her own views are very consonant with Christianity. So there's that. There's also quite frankly, a whole, um, a whole drive that there were, you know, um, other Jewish women, Edith Stein, for example, who became, um, who became, you know, uh, saints, right, um, after being murdered in, in the Shoah. So um, I think that the Catholic Church um, has been, um, has, has been supporting um, research into her and uh, and for people to read her because they feel it's consonant um, with their own theology. That's, that's my guess. And I will just add on to say that I think that's one reason why she hasn't gathered um, a lot of official steam in the Jewish community because she doesn't refer specifically to Jewish authority very often. Um, there's a wonderful um, Dutch writer and journalist right now who's been working for many, many years on researching Eddie. And next year we'll be uh, putting out a, a biography, an incredibly detailed researched biography of her. And I've uh, heard from her enough to know that there are gonna be several shocking things <laughs> that we're gonna you know, learn in the context of Eddie, hopefully once it gets translated to English. Um, but one thing that she said is it's very clear that uh, Eddie and her family, though they were cosmopolitan Dutch, were still very much rooted in the Jewish community. And they still belonged in the Jewish community, had many relationships in the Jewish community and personally considered themselves uh, part of the Jewish community. Absolutely. Abai, I don't know if you saw if you saw the, the question in the chat over there. Oh no, look, thank you. Um, was she aware of what was happening to Jews across Europe and also with the progress of the war? It's a great question. She knew that, um, she, she definitely knew that, um, that there were work camps and there were definite suspicions that they were more than work camps and death camps. Um, but it hadn't been confirmed for them yet, right? And so people were getting on to the trains to Poland, not really sure what they were headed to. to. And, you know, it, it would be wonderful to have any kind of writing or any kind of record of how she felt once she found out what was going on, right? A, a further challenge to her theology, perhaps, um, but we don't have any evidence. Um, Laura Bendel, oh, there we go. She just sent you a question as well. Wonderful. What does Eddie's writing say to us in today's world? Thank you, Laura, and lovely to see you. Um, that's a question I ask myself all the time. I wonder about you, but you know, ever since I was a young girl and found out about the Shoah, right? It's been a constant part of my awareness. How would I respond? What would I do? Who would I be? How would I react? And I of course have no idea, right? I have no idea the truth of that. I think that there are moments in our times, you know, and certainly in all of the work, wonderful work that Rav Shmuley 
leads and coordinates, there's there's plenty to do in this world. And the question of, you know, how much are we actually in in a situation where people are 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 very much uh, in in um, in terrible straits? How would I deal with this? Either as a victim, you know, or or as uh, as a bystander. And one thing that Eddie really offers to me is another possibility, right? And and let me be clear: I don't think that, that I have no sense of of saying anyone should have acted in one way versus another, or that there's one way to respond or react. But I think that Eddie's journals really give us. Um, evidence of what it looks like to apply spiritual practice to the most challenging of situations. And what is possible? Is it possible to hold on to your idea that you don't need to hate people? Is it possible? Is it possible to still find peace and to still have a conversation with God even in a camp, is it possible, right? And to me, it doesn't really even matter, you know, what her last moments looked like, what her last months looked like, right? Up through this, she leaves us a record, right? Of, of what is possible, of, of one way, which is possible, which I think opens things up for, for us. And, and it definitely, for me, um, challenges challenges me um, to think about um, how my own spiritual practice uh, is working and what I give to it, but also how it impacts others around me and how it leads me to act in the world. I think all of that is really a direct implication of her journals. But I'd be curious if, if there's anyone else who, who has different feelings about that. Yeah, Beth. Make this the last, uh, last comment or question here. I, what I find, the thing I find most touching in every, uh, in each piece of her writing that you've brought to us is how she says, all that really matters, that we safeguard that little piece of you, God, in ourselves. That is so touching. And I think that that is a very worthy task for a contemporary person as well. Even someone, I mean, I'm a suburbanite living in a secure home. I have shelter, food, and... I have no existential threat over me. And yet I still think safeguarding that little piece of God is a very, very worthy task. Amen. And, you know, maybe I'll close with she, when she, you know, it was, it was chaos when she realized that she and her family were suddenly, they had been told they were going to not have to go to Auschwitz. And there's a whole story about what happened that I'm gonna skip, but she mentions that she just opens the Torah, right? And she, she comes to this piece of Psalms, Psalms chapter 18, three. Adonai, my crag, my fortress, my rescuer, my God, my rock, in whom I seek refuge, my shield, my mighty champion, my haven. That this is what she just opens to, you know, in the midst of, of that moment. Um, I think that it, in some ways, you know, sums up what she talks about trying to do. And so in a sense, she's bringing the Psalms, right, into Westerbork and onto the train with her, which to me is just, uh, I wish there would been a different ending to the story, but, but this one also moves me deeply. So thank you for allowing me to uh, to share her with you. Oh my goodness, what a gift, what a gift for us to have been able to learn and benefit from such a lovely presentation of poetry and of history 
and of song and of hope and of Musara, of character development, and the chance for us to be reflective on our history and of our present and of our future in such a gentle and yet poignant, poignant way. So Rabbi Dorothy Richmond, you are so great. We're so fortunate to have you as an educator in our Valley Beit Midrash community. And uh, thank you for this time. And thank you all who joined. And I know some of you who joined followed Rabbi Richmond here. So I, I hope you'll continue to follow her. And I hope you'll also continue to join with us at Valley Beit Midrash. Wishing everyone a wonderful day. See you soon. Thank you, Rabbi Richmond. That was wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Touching and beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much.